our most gracious Heavenly Father. Thank you for even the technology to do this. Thank you, Lord, that while this this plague has kept us apart, you have given us a means of feeding on your word. And so, as we come to your word, that's what we ask for, Lord. We ask that by the Holy Spirit working within us, that we would be able to feed on your word, that we would be nourished to the depths of our souls. Show us, O Lord, how desperately we need Christ and lead us to him. Lead us to a deeper faith in him. Lead us to a deeper confidence in what we have by your grace through faith in Christ alone for his glory during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, I do encourage you to have your Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, there are some options. You could uh, open another uh, browser tab on your uh, computer, and you could go to www.blueletterbible.org. There are multiple translations there. I preach out of the NASB, but depending on what translation you like, you can have almost any translation from blueletterbible.org. If you prefer to use an app on your phone, um, Literal Word is an excellent Bible reading app. Uh, That's one that I I strongly, strongly recommend. So you could download that in the Google Play Store, and you could follow along with us. Today we're going to be in John chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 60 to 65. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have another tab open to blueletterbible.org, please turn to John chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 60 to 65. You know, one of the most difficult things that any Christian can experience and will experience as Christians is to see somebody that you know or somebody that you respect walk away from the faith. Somebody who's helped you maybe. Maybe it's somebody who has just instructed you or or counseled you. Maybe it's just somebody who has encouraged you in your faith in some how along the along your journey of uh, of growing in Christ's likeness, it's something that is terrible to see, and yet it happens. Maybe somebody grows up going to church, but eventually they come to the point where they stop going to church for one reason or another. And I understand that there are a lot of reasons that people do that, and not only do they not come. But they get to the point where they no longer have any interest in coming. Perhaps you could even say that they have something of an aversion toward the idea of going to church. Now I have to warn you, if you're new to the faith, that if you stick around long enough, if you're a Christian long enough and go to church long enough and get to know enough people and read enough books and become familiar enough with enough you know, of the, the conference mega pastors, uh, that you will see this kind of thing happen. And in an age when the priorities and the values of the average American are probably further away from the biblical priorities and values than they've ever been, we shouldn't be surprised to see an increase of this phenomenon that the Bible refers to as apostasy. Apostasy, which means walking away from the faith. The social sciences have long suggested that there's kind of a generational ebb and flow where people leave, but they they come back uh, when it comes to religion, that, you know, that kids who grew up going to church, uh, you know, they were raised in religious households, going to church regularly, they would drift away from religion, drift away from going to church for a season as young adults, but then once they started having families and having kids, they would eventually come back. But the younger generation today does not seem to be following that pattern. They've left, but even as they have started having families and having children, they do not seem to be returning as previous generations did. Just last year, 
There was a very well-known pastor from my generation, um, I'm from Generation X, if that matters, uh, who announced that he was leaving the faith for good. And he had written books, and he had spoken at enormous conferences, and he had pastored a megachurch, and, and thus he seemed to be a very unlikely candidate for apostasy. The news of his departure, however, from the faith, it just devastated thousands and thousands of Christians who had been impacted or, uh, or, or motivated, uh, drawn closer and deeper to Christ because of his ministry. Now, oftentimes, apostasy is uh, directly correlated to moral failure. Uh, people stop going to church because uh, you know, there's a sin in their life, and they would rather stop going to church than acknowledge the fact that God is not okay with their sin. Uh, sometimes it's because they don't like what the Bible has to say, not about their own sin necessarily, but about the sinful choices of people who are near and dear to them. Sometimes apostasy is related to unresolved doubts uh, or unresolved questions about the faith. However it happens, whatever the reason, apostasy is a real thing. It's a real phenomenon. Jesus even experienced it in his own ministry after teaching one of his most famous discourses, one of his best discourses, which is what we've been studying as we've gone through John chapter 6 thus far. People followed him. We've seen loads of people, scores of people following him, thinking that he could serve their own best interests, providing physical food, uh, being one of those interests. But Jesus pointed them to something greater, to something better, and that is the need for spiritual food and spiritual nourishment, which is found only by believing savingly in him. So he instructed them of their need to believe in him, but their desires would not be swayed. Nevertheless, what we saw, if you'll remember back to the middle of the chapter, is that Jesus was not discouraged because he knew that the Father had sent him to redeem a people, and that this would be accomplished by the Father drawing those people to him. And so he continued to instruct the masses to believe in him savingly, and to believe in him alone, knowing that the Father would draw whom the Father draws. Knowing of the substitutionary sacrifice that he would present in his death, he instructed them, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Referring to the importance of people believing in him, he taught them this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus had attracted a lot of followers. He attracted a lot of attention. He had thousands and thousands of people following him through John chapter 6. And yet, what becomes obvious as we get nearer to the end of this chapter, is that Jesus did not care about that. He didn't care about numbers. Numbers were of absolutely no concern to him, which is something, I think, of a subtle kind of between-the-lines rebuke to a large portion of the modern church where there's such a huge emphasis on numbers, drawing the biggest crowd we possibly can. As I've said so many times, it's not difficult to draw a crowd. All you need to do is put some monkeys up on the stage and put a bouncy you know, cage out in the front yard, and people will come. But people will only stay for what they've been drawn by. What you draw them by is what you draw them to. It's very important to understand that. See, Jesus didn't hesitate to, to push these people. He didn't hesitate to challenge them with doctrine that they found very, very uncomfortable. There were no gimmicks in his ministry. There was no bait and switch in his ministry. The more he taught doctrine, the more people left his side and stopped following him. So the more he taught doctrine, the more apostates there were. 
And this is one of the things that we see happen as we get near to the end of chapter 6. A chapter that begins with this incredible following, 5,000 families, and ends with the realization that all of them were false followers. On the heels of this great discourse that Jesus taught in the middle of John chapter 6, we see the aftermath of this incredibly rich sermon, this discourse that he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it's funny in a way, I guess in a, in a sad way, so it's ironic, that if you go to an evangelistic you know, crusade or event or conference today, their desire is usually that you would leave uh, kind of on an emotional high, but that's clearly not what happened after Jesus taught and invited people, instructed people, demanded that people believe in him and find life everlasting in him. So as they leave, as they come out of this, uh, this discourse, what we see, what we're going to see today is that their emotions are very low. Uh, many have come away very, very discouraged, very, uh, very uh, disheartened. Uh, they come away thinking, you know, what am I doing? What, am I, what, am I, what have I got myself into? They come away offended. And yet the point of our passage today is that true spiritual life is found in the words of Jesus, and thus we must go to them frequently, seeking to be spiritually nourished, edified, and strengthened by them. So our text today begins immediately following his very challenging and confronting discourse that Jesus gave in the synagogue in Capernaum. Let's start with verses 60 and 61 of John chapter 6. We read, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? You know, people are essentially the same no matter where you go, by nature. No matter where you go, no matter what period of time you're talking about, the people of Noah's time were by nature the same as the people of our time, and the people of our time are the same as the people of Jesus' time. This is, by the way, I believe, why history is constantly so prone to repeat itself. It's because human nature is always the same. And because human nature is the same in all places and at all times, the results of Jesus' ministry in Galilee were exactly like what they were when he was in Judea. For a time in Judea, you know, Jesus was very popular. People were flocking to him regularly. But eventually people saw that Jesus did not come to ensure that they could have you know, their best life now. Rather, he came to preach truth. And he wasn't afraid to preach doctrine. Very hard, very challenging doctrine. John refers to these people who had been listening to his teaching as disciples. We shouldn't get them confused with the 12 disciples. There's a clear distinction that gets made between these two groups, between these disciples and the 12. But many, not just some, not maybe a few, but many were troubled by what they had heard Jesus preach. And so what did they do? Uh, they did the same thing that they saw that we saw people doing in the middle of the chapter. They started grumbling, grumbling to one another. And what were they saying? What were they grumbling about? Well, John, who was there and almost certainly heard the grumbling with his own ears, tells us uh, what they said. He says that they said, "This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to it?" That's a very interesting question. It actually says more about them than it does about what Jesus had taught. See, the word that gets translated as difficult here indicates that they're not saying that it was difficult to understand. Rather, it indicates that it was difficult to swallow, that it was a, a difficult thing for them to accept. The Greek word indicates that it was offensive, uh, it can be translated as intolerable. 
So the problem wasn't that they didn't understand what Jesus had said. The problem was that they did understand what Jesus had said. As A.W. Pink notes in his commentary, quote, it was not that they found the language of Christ so obscure as to be unintelligible, but what they had heard was so irreconcilable with their own views that they would not receive it, end quote. See, what we, what we see several times throughout Jesus' ministry is that there are times when people don't understand him. And when they don't understand him, they ask questions. When, when they didn't understand, uh, you know, they, they would bring it up with him. But when they did understand, but didn't like what he had to say, they grumbled. And as you'll recall from our previous studies, grumbling against the teachings of Jesus is a sin. It's a means of exalting their own thoughts over Jesus' thoughts. It's a way of, of saying, my ideas, my thoughts are better than what Jesus has to say or what, what Scripture has to say. It was the great uh, legendary preacher, R.C. Sproul, who said this. He said, quote, It is your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you want it to teach. End quote. There is no doubt that the Bible presents teachings that are not only offensive to the unregenerate, unsaved, natural man, but which may even be deemed offensive by legitimate, bona fide Christians. Teachings that are totally contrary to everything that they've, they've ever heard. Uh, teachings that are totally contrary to, to what they think. Teachings that are unlike what they desire. Teachings that just make them feel uncomfortable. And yet, if you are a Christian, you have a responsibility before God to accept and to believe what His Word teaches. Even, perhaps especially, if it's something that challenges you and makes you feel uncomfortable. Because the truth of the matter is that every single one of us is prone to be, uh, to, to, to let our feelings dictate how we read scripture rather than allowing scripture to dictate how we should be feeling. And we must be led not by our feelings, but by God's word. The question is, which is going to influence which? Is God's word going to influence your feelings? That's the way it should be. Or are your feelings going to influence how you understand God's word? That's a very, very dangerous place to be. I also think it's worth noting that, uh, that when these people are offended, where do they go? They just go to one another. They just grumble among themselves. What should they have done? What would have been the right response if they were offended? Well, they should have taken their offense to the Lord himself. And so must we, should we ever find offense with something that God's Word teaches. I mean, if you have the nerve to take offense at what God's Word says, then surely you have the gall to stand before the God of the universe and let Him know that you dislike something that He said. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. What you should do if you take offense to something that Scripture says to something that Scripture teaches, what you should do is humble yourself before God and beg Him to help you to not take offense, but to love what His Word reveals. So what are the things that these disciples, these, these followers of Christ, uh, these disciples who are on the verge of apostasy, on the verge of walking away from Him, what are the things that these disciples took such incredible offense with? Well, as we consider this question, let me remind you that people in our day are exactly the same by nature uh, as the people in Jesus' time. And thus, people today are offended by the same things that these disciples, these people, were offended by. First of all, they were offended by the fact that Jesus claimed to be God incarnate. They were, they were offended by the fact that he claimed to be God incarnate and all of the implications of that claim. He had claimed to have been the bread of life that had come down from heaven. And this implied that he had existed prior to being born, something that, that really only God can claim. 
So prior to being conceived, he's saying, he had made a conscious and deliberate decision to take on flesh and live amongst men. And they took offense to that. Because it implies that while he looked like them and talked like them and walked like them, he was like them in every way, and yet he alone was worthy of their faith. And he alone was worthy of their worship and of their devotion. We know that they took offense to this. They always took offense to his claims to be God. In the other gospel narratives, when he made claims that might kind of seem obscure to us, it was clear to them uh, that those claims were being made. It was not obscure to them. They understood that Jesus was claiming repeatedly to be God in the flesh, and they accused him of blasphemy for it. On some occasions, they even attempted to murder him on the spot for making the claim that he was God incarnate, that he was deity in the flesh. And so the primary offense seems to be Jesus' claim to be divine. Secondly, Jesus had said back in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And they had to be thinking, no life in ourselves. What? What does that even mean? How dare he make a claim like that? Of course we have life in ourselves. Or so they thought, and thought so wrongly. They clearly understood the implications of what that meant about them. It meant that they were hopeless. It meant that they were desperately, desperately lost without Christ and that their only hope is grace. See, if they don't have any life in themselves, if they're spiritually dead, they have nothing to stand on of their own. They can't claim that they were good. They can't claim that they sought God. They can't claim to have responded to him or to have obeyed him. They are spiritually dead. And dead men don't respond to somebody trying to help them. Their only hope is that God would show them unearned, unmerited grace and mercy in giving them life by drawing them to Christ. As as Jesus had indicated back in verse 44 when he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So this is all to say that they took great offense to the doctrine of total depravity because total depravity sets the stage for our desperate need for grace that grace the doctrines of grace are our only hope let me tell you friends people take incredibly great offense to the doctrine of human depravity of total depravity People leave churches over this teaching of total depravity. I'm talking about Christians and non-Christians alike. It was just a short time ago, a woman who had been a member of our church for many years came to me after a church service, and she accused me of twisting Scripture, of twisting Scripture. When I taught Psalm uh, Psalm 16, uh, the part that she took issue with was when David said, I have no good besides you. Now, I had taught in the sermon that I preached on Psalm 16 that David was talking about moral goodness, that he has no moral goodness apart from the righteousness that God imputes to him. But she said that David was referring to all of the good things that he had, all the material goods that he had that came from God. And so she told me that she didn't want to be a member of our church anymore, and she left. She left the church. Well, I'll tell you, I I could not sleep that night, and any pastor who was accused of twisting Scripture would probably feel the same way. So what I did is I ended up just getting out of bed very early in the morning and looking a lot more closely at that verse. What I found is that there is a totally separate Hebrew word that gets uh, translated, um, you know, goods, like earthly goods, that uh, that refers to earthly goods. And then I read the way that somebody who uh, has a different Uh, perspective of salvation than I do teaches it. Uh, I looked up Chuck Smith's commentary on it, and let me tell you, he sounded like more of a Calvinist when he taught it than I did. 
about that verse. So uh, when you preach the utter inability of man, the desperate helplessness of man, you can expect many to take great offense. And it's not usually an issue of the mind as much as it's an issue of the heart because Scripture is crystal clear on this issue. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. It's crystal clear. Just as Jesus was very clear on this issue in John chapter 6. So they were offended first by Jesus' claim to be God. They were offended secondly by the teaching of total depravity. Third, they were offended by the notion that Jesus would have to present himself as a sacrifice. In verse 51, Jesus had said, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He was referring to his future sacrifice on the cross. He was looking forward to the once and for all atonement for sin that was made on Calvary. Natural, unregenerate man thinks that the idea of substitutionary atonement is just foolishness. They are offended by it. It is a stumbling block for them. How can one man atone for the sins of another, much less the sins of countless people who would repent and believe savingly in Christ? Much of the church's current denial of the doctrines of grace can be traced back to a man named Charles Finney, who explicitly denied substitutionary atonement. He believed that Christ was righteous enough to die for himself, but that his death could not be in the place of sinners. He wrote this, he said, quote, If he, that is Christ, had obeyed the law as our substitute, then why should our own return to personal obedience be insisted upon as a sine qua non of our salvation? End quote. In other words, Why would God instruct us to be holy? Why would God instruct us to be righteous if Christ's work is sufficient? He couldn't reconcile those two ideas. And this all flowed from Charles Finney's uh, denial of original sin. He denied that people are sinners by nature. He did affirm that people were sinners by choice. But he denied that people were sinners by nature. So in other words, he believed and he taught that we can all be sinless if we simply just commit to being sinless. He called the doctrine of original sin, quote, anti-scriptural and nonsensical dogma, end quote. Now, somebody who says that, you might guess, would produce some very, very dangerous teachings and that people would avoid him. Well, the first part's true, the second part isn't. Yes, he produced some very dangerous teachings. No, people did not avoid him. In fact, he's had a huge impact on the modern church. But isn't it amazing, as we consider these things that these people were offended by, isn't it amazing to consider that people are offended by the same thing today that these disciples in the text were offended by? And yet, if you understand human nature, it's really not that amazing at all. People today have the same fallen nature and the same darkened minds that people in Jesus' time had. The gospel is as offensive to people today as it was to people in Jesus' time. And so they took offense, which resulted in their grumbling against Jesus amongst one another. But Jesus was aware of it. He was aware of it, and that that itself may have been uh, a miracle. Uh, We don't know how close to Jesus they were, but Jesus was aware of it all. That might have really shocked them. I don't know, but it would shock me, I think. But uh, because they were grumbling amongst one another, uh, they they were trying to avoid having to deal with Jesus personally. So Jesus goes and deals with them. So he confronts them with the absurdity of their offense, asking them, does this cause you to stumble? He continues in verse 62. Let's look at verse 62. He says, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now let's start with understanding this. Uh, Where was Jesus before? He was in heaven. Uh, So he asks them, What if I go back there? 
Now, there are a couple ways of understanding what Jesus is saying here, but we have to understand that there's only one meaning. There, there are a couple different interpretations, but only one of them can be correct. Uh, the most common way that commentators understand this, uh, this passage, this word, is to be in reference to his future ascension, which we see in the book of Acts. However, let's, let's keep in mind whom Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to disciples who are about to walk away. He's speaking to disciples who are about to become apostates. They will be by the end of this chapter. These people are not to be confused with the 12 disciples. No, these, these are people who don't believe in him savingly. They're not going to witness the ascension of Christ so I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to here when he says, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? These unbelievers would not witness that. The second understanding of what Jesus is saying here, which I am com completely convinced is the correct understanding, is to see that Jesus is saying something else, to see that he's referring to something other than his future ascension. Rather, I believe he is referring backwards in time. Let's say that you had uh, videotaped, that you had, had filmed every second of Jesus' life and ministry, starting with his birth. Now, there would be two ways that you could watch that film forwards or backwards. And Jesus is saying, what if we just undid all of this that I've done and none of the redemptive work I've been sent to accomplish even began? What if we just undo it all? James Montgomery Boyce notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, it was not his future ascension that he was looking forward to, but his descension that he was remembering. He was saying, are you offended at my teachings? Do you find them hard? Well then, what if I were to retract them and retract the whole plan of redemption? What if I were to be unborn and then reascend to my father? What would you do then? End quote. And that's a good question. What would you do then? What, what would we do then? What would these soon-to-be apostate disciples do? None of us would have any hope. We'd have no means of being reconciled to God. We wouldn't have a mediator who stands between us and God. We wouldn't have a perfect substitute to stand in our place before God, bearing our sins and bearing God's holy and just wrath against those sins. We would remain dead in our sins, and God's just judgment would fall on us. But praise be to God, He didn't do that. Instead, Jesus would continue to live a perfect sinless life, and he would give his life as he promised, as a ransom for many, indeed for all who believe in him savingly on the cross. He rose again from the grave on the third day, and he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over his kingdom, interceding for us as his people, as the one and only mediator between God and man. Now obviously, it is far, far better that Christ teach these difficult doctrines, that, that Christ uh, teach these very challenging things rather than undo his entire ministry and work of redemption. Jesus then adds another difficult teaching, an offensive teaching on top of this. Maybe this is the cherry on, on, top of, uh, on, on the top. Let's look at verses 63 to 64. Verses 63 and 64, Jesus continues saying, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He says it is the Spirit that gives life, who gives life. And while many in our day and age take 
great offense at the idea that we are spiritually dead and unable to help ourselves, unwilling by the very essence of our nature to be reconciled to God unless He intervenes by His grace and draws us to Christ. It is nevertheless this doctrine that Jesus is teaching in crystal clear language here. The Spirit gives life. We don't seek it for ourselves because the flesh profits nothing. In other words, there is nothing within us that is good. There is nothing within us that we can do in the flesh to gain eternal life. It must be given by the Spirit to us as an unmerited gift. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we cannot believe and we cannot understand rightly. Because our spirit, the essence of, of who we are by nature is so in rebellion toward God by nature. A.W. Pink notes, quote, The flesh has no part in the works of God. All fleshly activities amount to nothing where the regeneration of dead sinners is concerned. Neither the logical arguments advanced by the mind, hypnotic powers brought to bear upon the will, touching appeals made to the emotions, beautiful music and hearty singing to catch the ear, nor sensuous trappings to draw the eye. None of these are of the slightest avail in stirring dead sinners." The question then is, how can we be saved? How can anyone be saved? And the answer is right here. It is the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit must impart spiritual life to us. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But what we see that Jesus says, he adds this. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. What he's saying here is that the means by which the Spirit works to impart life to the sinner are the words of Christ. This is a a reference to preaching the gospel. This is a reference to the preaching and proclamation of the Scriptures. When spiritually dead sinners hear the gospel, when they hear the Scriptures preached, one of two things can happen. First is that the words can fall on dead ears, And nothing changes. If anything, maybe somebody's heart is more hardened toward God. But the second thing that can happen is that Christ's sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And their hearts are broken. Their hearts are softened to the gospel. This is a verse that connects us directly to Romans chapter 10, verse 14, where Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Now again, Paul doesn't say, How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? No, he says, How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? The original Greek does not have that word of there in the text. That's something that translators put in there um, to to make it easier to understand. Uh, It's kind of a a little bit of an interpretation on their point, uh, on their part. But you see, the point is, religiosity, if it is purely and entirely of the flesh, is of absolutely no benefit to the individual. It's only of, of benefit if the Holy Spirit does his work, does his part, unveiling the, uh, the, the heart of the sinner, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see, a new heart with which to believe. He, the Holy Spirit, he must illuminate the text of Scripture for us so that we may not only understand, but so that we may see how a text applies to us and believe. Without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, we have no understanding of spiritual matters or of what Scripture teaches. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. 
which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So why is it that somebody who's not saved, somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit working in them and helping them to understand, how, how do they come to the Scriptures? They come in darkness. They cannot understand the things of God because God is not uh, in them, the Holy Spirit is not in them, illuminating the Scriptures for them, giving them understanding. So how do we understand the thoughts of God? Only, only by the Spirit of God. See, religiosity, if it is purely and entirely of the flesh, is of absolutely no benefit to the individual. Consider the way that this can be seen when somebody's baptized. Oftentimes, you know, people will desire to be baptized not because they have given their life to Christ, but because they want to be able to claim some kind of religious merit with God. And yet, we all know that baptism does not save. The act of, uh, of getting in a pool of water or of being sprinkled, if you're a Presbyterian, uh, does not save a person. A person can do that and yet remain under God's wrath, under God's just condemnation. The same thing can happen with the Lord's Supper. The same thing can happen. I mean, how many people take communion because they have some idea, kind of a superstitious idea, that taking communion is what saves them or what gives them merit before God? They'd rather put their confidence, their trust for salvation in their own work, their own taking of communion, than in the work that Christ did to reconcile sinners to God, which is received not by taking communion, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, let's, let's add uh, going to church to the list of things that you can do in the flesh but are of no benefit or no avail if it's only done in the flesh. Uh, so going to church is, is one of those things. I mean, as a pastor, I'm very well aware of the fact that there are all kinds of reasons that people go to church, but 99% of them are the wrong reasons. There's only one right reason. Uh, what about praying? Uh, a work of the flesh, sure. What about reading the Bible? I mean, all these things are examples of the things that cannot in and of themselves save us. They are works of the flesh. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, they are of no benefit to the individual. So, looking at what Jesus has said, he has not held anything back from teaching the truth to these people, regardless of how offensive it is. And this is why he concludes with what we see in verse 65. Let's look at verse 65 together. It says, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the, uh, from the Father. Friends, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is so offensive, even Jesus acknowledges the reality of it here. That's why he taught that the only way that anybody comes to him is by the Father drawing them to him. The fact that it is natural, uh, that, that it is offensive to the natural man is actually proof of what Jesus was claiming there. When he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He explains right here why he had to say that. It's because the message of the gospel is offensive. Don't claim exception. Don't say to yourself, well, that wasn't the case with me. I wasn't offended when, uh, when I heard the gospel. If you were not offended when you heard the gospel, praise the Lord. That's because of grace. It's not because of anything that was within you that you were not offended by the gospel. It was by his grace that you received it, that you didn't take offense to it, but that you took pleasure and delight in it. Because if you are an exception, then Jesus is wrong here. So you're not an exception. I'm not an exception either. He's explaining why he said that. It's because the gospel 
was, is so offensive. The fact that anyone believes it, the fact that anyone takes comfort or delight in it is evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit has given them life. Here we see in this passage the divine mystery of, on one hand, God's sovereignty in election and salvation, and yet man's responsibility to believe. Nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them by the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and yet everybody has a responsibility to hear, to believe, and to obey uh, Christ's words and to put their faith for salvation in him. The Spirit gives life. That's God's sovereignty in election, in salvation. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. That's Jesus putting the weight of responsibility on each individual. Jesus' teachings are directed toward you, listener. The question is, do you humble yourself and believe? Or do you take offense, insisting on your way and your right and your free will over what he says? If you have never believed in Jesus in a saving way, in a way that humbles you and causes you to desire to submit your life to him in joyful obedience and surrender, you today have an obligation to see what Jesus is saying and teaching here and to turn away, to repent from whatever you have loved, from whatever you have obeyed, from whatever you have worshipped instead of Christ and to believe and obey Christ. You have a duty to see your need for him and to plead with him to have mercy on you. And here is the promise. If you'll do that, He will be happy to oblige. Remember what he said back in the middle of the chapter? All who come to me, I will not cast out. If you will come to him in saving faith, he will never cast you out. He doesn't prevent you from coming to him. Only you prevent yourself from coming to him. But if you are a Christian, you should understand that you too have an obligation in light of this text. And that obligation is to feed on Christ, to be nourished by hearing and believing and obeying his words, and to cast away every sin that would ensnare you. You must partake of the means of sanctifying grace that God has ordained. Of course, not to be saved, but because you have been saved and are now assigned with the duty of growing by God's grace in Christ's likeness to the glory of God. True spiritual life, friends, is found in the words of Jesus. And thus we must go to them frequently, seeking to be spiritually nourished, seeking to be edified, and seeking to be strengthened by them. That's your first obligation, Christian. The second, the second, if you're a Christian, is to share the gospel. To take this message, the gospel message, to those who are spiritually lost and dead and who will spend eternity in hell if they do not repent and believe in Christ. They will surely perish if nobody brings the message of the gospel to them. And as you do that, here's what you can be confident in. Here's what you can rest in. Christ's sheep will hear his voice. And God will use the gospel message through your preaching to draw the elect to Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we confess to you that it is only when we understand our own nature human nature, as it's revealed in your word, that we truly even begin to appreciate and to understand your incredible graciousness with us. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that by your grace, 
You drew us to Christ, not because we deserved it, not because of some work of the flesh that we did, not because we said a prayer, not because we did this or that, but purely out of your own goodness. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the way that it nourishes us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear in order that we may believe. Lord, truly everything that we are and everything that we have is a gift from you. So teach us, O Lord, by the Spirit working in us, helping us to understand. Teach us to have a more more solid appreciation, a deeper appreciation for even the fact that we believe. Teach us, O Lord, to live our lives in light of these incredible truths in order that Christ may be glorified in our lives. We pray for those who are around us, who do not know Christ. In the silence of our hearts, we remember family members and we lift them up to you, uh, co-workers, friends who do not know you, who, who are not reconciled to you through faith alone in Christ alone. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel and that you would be faithful to what your word says, that the elect, that those you have chosen, will believe. And we ask, O oh Lord, that if it would be your will, that it would even be those we bring before you right now. O oh Father, we pray that Christ would be glorified in all that we do. So give us courage. Grow us in Christ's likeness. Help us not to be intimidated by the reality of people taking offense to the gospel. But fill us with compassion and a desire to glorify Christ by sharing the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.